This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Ryan a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a four-part series of messages Alistair Begg presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1991. Then, we'll close the week Friday with a message from Alistair titled, Revival Soul. Alistair Begg is the senior pastor of Cleveland's Parkside Church. He's an author, conference speaker, and host of the daily Truth for Life radio program. Now, here's Alistair Begg on Today in the Word radio. Our focus this morning is on 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 10 and 11. We looked on the first morning at developing humility, and then on the second, discarding anxiety. Yesterday morning, dealing with adversity, and this morning, discovering security. The issue of security is something that we all face at multiple levels. Some of us are particularly concerned although it's very early in the month, about the matters of financial security. Some of us, when we go to bed at night, are consumed with notions of personal security. And every day on our news broadcasts, we are confronted by the need for national security. And there are people who try and sell us all kinds of things so that we might be secure in our homes. Indeed, the marketing geniuses play on the insecurity which pervades many of our lives. And so that high-level annuities and uh, the kind of glue that they seem to sell to keep your false teeth in your mouth are all suggested as being important in order to establish security. Kind of how to talk your head off without losing your teeth. So get our special glue, which will keep your teeth in your head. I realize that none of you have the glue or the need for it, but that day will surely come. And on that day, you'll remember, you'll say, oh, yes, that was the glue uh, to which he was referring. Some of us are by nature rather insecure, and that is highlighted by the sense of numerical insignificance which pervades so much of our lives. A student at the University of Illinois received a letter which began, Dear 00091592263, we have a personal interest in your well-being. <laughs> and the student could be forgiven for disbelieving that sentiment. All of us are tracked throughout the United States of America 
on the basis of our social security number. Most of those issues have to do with matters of time. One day they will be over, one day they will be irrelevant. But the issue of security to which Peter addresses himself here, as he draws this letter to a close, is eternal in its dimensions. You will remember that we said on the first morning that his readers were surrounded by the threat of persecution. They were doubtless tempted to assume that an experience of suffering was alien to the purposes of God for them. As they encountered difficulties that came across their path, they probably were not unlike ourselves, wondering why it would be that God would bring them along that journey. And essentially, Peter has come full circle in this letter, because back in the first chapter and in verse 6, he had encouraged the readers that in these truths of salvation they greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And here he is back at the end of his letter, reminding them that after they have suffered for a little while, they will enter into this glory and blessing. Now, some of us this morning are suffering, and the temptation is that we seek to run away from it. One of the Puritan writers said, in avoiding trials, we miss blessings. And some of the issues through which God brings us, he brings us in order to fashion us after the character of his Son in a way that couldn't be achieved under any other pattern. And so, in the final moments that we have together, I'd like to look with you at this whole notion, noticing three things. First of all, the pattern which God designs, and then the power which God displays, and then the praise which God deserves. And we'll probably spend longer on the first than we will on the remaining two. The words which help us to get a hold of the pattern which God designs are these. First of all, grace— You will notice that God is described here in verse 10 as the God of all grace. That dimension of the nature of God whereby he grants to us what we don't deserve. You remember the story of the young guy who went to get some photographs taken, and he said that he would like for them to do him justice. And the photographer said, Sir, young man, what you require is not justice, but mercy. And uh, mercy is the flip side of grace. Mercy is that whereby God does not give to us what we do deserve, and grace is that dimension whereby he gives to us what we don't deserve. And when the wonder of grace begins to grip our hearts and minds, then it produces humility, it helps to deal with anxiety, and it affirms us in this security. It was a foul-mouthed slave trader— John Newton, who in experiencing the radical change brought about by Jesus Christ in his life, wrote the memorial and phenomenal words of Amazing Grace. Unfortunately, Amazing Grace has been played on the bagpipes and has been sung by every character imaginable and has been denuded of much of its power and impact. Indeed, as I went through uh, one of the buildings here in the center of the city yesterday afternoon, I heard somebody playing Amazing Grace on the piano for the whole passing thoroughfare of the crowd to listen to. I found myself saying, I wish I could stand up on top of the piano and just talk for a wee while to the six floors of the Bloomingdale's Tower here about the nature of grace. 
He is the God of all grace. He is the God who loved us when we were unlovable. He is the God of Romans 5. At just the right time, when we were helpless, with no way of escape, he sent Christ to be our Savior. He's the God of all grace, whereby he didn't go to Zacchaeus and tell Zacchaeus, who was a dirty little cheat, Zacchaeus, clean up your act, and you can be a member of my gang. He went into his house, and he made him a member of his gang so that he could clean up his act. He is pictured in the Father in Luke 15, the Father whose Son has said, Give me the portion of goods that falls to me, and the Father had divided to him his living. And you remember the Son had taken his journey a great way off and had found a city, and there he had wasted his substance, as the King James Version says, with riotous living. And when he began to be in want, he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And as he sat feeding the pigs, it says in the King James, and he fain would have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no one gave unto him. He was in a position of abject, total desolation. And then he said, I will arise and I will go to my father, and I will say to my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants." And Jesus then records, and he arose and came to his father. And then these fantastic words. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. And he ran, a picture of God running in the New Testament. The only picture of God running in the New Testament, I think, that I've been able to find. And he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And the boy started his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. And the father said, hey, just shut up for a minute. And then he turned to his servant. He said, put the shower on and get the gear. We're going to have a party. He is the God of all grace. Otherwise, how could any of us ever sing his praise this morning? He is the God not of some grace, but the God of all grace. There is not a burden we might face. There is not a need that we might have. There is not a dimension of human difficulty which God's grace is unable to minister to. So when we think of the pattern of security, it is grounded in his grace. Secondly, it is established in his glory. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory. What is glory? the glory of the presence of God in eternity. The suffering church already has had a taste of glory. If your Bible is open, you'll notice the 14th verse of chapter 4. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The glory of God akin to that inheritance which is resting for you in heaven, which is imperishable, which is undefiled, which will never fade away, which actually has your name on it. When you go inside the locker room of a great sporting team, one of the things you love to see is you love to see the jerseys all hanging there with the numbers and the shoes underneath, and they're all ready for game day. And the individual walks in, and he goes to his locker, and he puts on his shoes, and he pulls on his shirt, and he's ready for action. It is no exaggeration to say that somewhere in the locker rooms of heaven, God is already hanging up your shirt, preparing your uniform. It has your name right on it. 
in that day when the Spirit of glory will rest upon you in all of its fullness. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will say face to face. Now we may appear to be irrelevant. Now we may seem to be making little dent, but God is preparing us for that day when the Spirit of glory will rest upon us. And it is that to which we fix our gaze, not that we might run away from the present, but in order that we might give perspective to the present. The hymn writer understood it. He said, When all my labors and trials are o'er, and I am safe on that beautiful shore, just to be with the dear Lord I adore, will through the ages be glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me, when by his grace I shall look on his face. That will be glory for me. Of course, this morning, if that does not ring a bell in your heart, it's because you are not enjoying the presence of the Lord Jesus today. You're like the kid who finishes church and catches food from all his friends, gets a guy to share a Snickers bar with him, goes over and finds a girl standing beside a machine and eats half a bag of M&Ms, finds somebody else with potato chips and eats potato chips, finds another guy who just opened a can of Coke and says, can I have a drink of that before you start? And so within 15 minutes of the end of church, his whole stomach is sloshing around with Snickers and peanuts and glory all knows whatnot, and he's going home. And his mom knows that this kid loves roast potatoes, loves Yorkshire pudding, loves gravy on the Yorkshire pudding, loves mashed potatoes with no lumps. <laughs> it's his favorite meal. If he, was, if he was found lying by the side of the street somewhat concussed and somebody said, what's your favorite meal? He'd say, Yorkshire pudding and roast beef and potatoes with no lumps. And so he comes home, and his mother has been expecting him, and she lays it out on the table, and he picks at it, and he fiddles with it, and he finds no enjoyment in it whatsoever. There's no glory attached to it at all. What's wrong? The potatoes are lumpy? No. The beef's tough? No. The gravy's cold? No. What happened? The boy filled his stomach with other kinds of junk, so that even what he knew he really enjoyed, he never got to enjoy. If you sell yourself short, young people, in relation to following strenuously after Jesus Christ, if you forget that ministry is for Christ, it isn't an end in itself, if you forget that academic qualifications are only to make you increasingly useful to the master, they are a point on a continuum. They are not a terminus. Then something will happen to you. And it is this, that you will lose your appetite for the notion of the glory of Christ resting upon your life. So when somebody says, just to catch a glimpse of his face would be terrific, Inside of you, you're going, Really? When I find that in myself, I ought to be deeply concerned. And so should you. I'll tell you how I know. 
When I went in Bloomingdale's yesterday afternoon, I saw this little guy that I thought I recognized first from the back, black hair and a long black coat. And it was who I thought it was. And I didn't have a pen. And I wanted dreadfully to be able to say I met him. And so I asked his wife for a pen. And I said, Mr. Hoffman, would you sign this sheet of paper for me? So Dustin Hoffman turns around, and he says, who would you like it signed to? And I said, sign it to Alistair. So he said, how do you spell Alistair? So I said, you should know that. You're smart. No, I said, spell it A-L-I-S-T-A-I-R. And then he gave me the thing, and then he went away, and I put it in my pocket. So the next store I go in, I had to stop myself from going, hey, do you know who I just met out here by the elevators? And then I went in another store, and I wanted to say, and I had no one to talk to, so I just talked to myself. Hey, that was amazing meeting him, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, certainly was. That was incredible. <laughs> That's phenomenal. How do you feel? I feel really great. I wish I'd said something. What was that? So, but here's the thing. Who in the world's Dustin Hoffman? Somebody who needs to know the power of Jesus Christ, right? But how come I wasn't in the next store going, hey, do you know who I just met? Jesus Christ. Could I tell you about him? Oh, so you're into PCMs. Big deal. Congratulations. But how about when you're not PCMing? How about when we're not on display? How about when we're not in the track? How about when it's just you, just me, just on our own? Are we seizing the opportunities to proclaim to a world without Christ the God of grace and the God of glory? Not only is his pattern woven in grace and in glory, but also in suffering after you have suffered a wee while. The Bible declares what experience confirms, namely, that faith does not remove us from the painful experiences of life in a fallen world. It is faulty thinking which emerges from a lot of flaky preaching, which allows people to believe that somehow suffering is supposed to be no part of our lives. So instead of facing it, we deny it, and we run from it. We face the temptation which David faced. He records it in Psalm 11. People were coming to him and saying, David, why don't you go get a cottage somewhere? Why don't you get out of here? Why don't you head for the mountains? And David has to take himself in check, and he says, in the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to the mountain? It's kind of, we gotta get out of this place if it's the last thing we ever do, you know. Something inside of you says, we just get out of here. Run from suffering. Run from the difficulties of life. Run from the hard courses. Run from the challenges. But don't run if you want to be conformed to the image of Christ, because the pattern that he weaves, which, by which he secures our sonship, is a pattern of grace and a pattern of glory and a pattern of suffering. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. Therefore, judge not the Lord by feeble strength, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. William Cowper whose experiences of suffering put him in a psychiatric institution three times in the course of his life. Sir Edward Elgar, the great musician, 
sat and listened to one of his pieces being played and sung, a young girl singing a solo from his work. She had a voice of exceptional purity, clarity, and range. She had virtually a perfect technique. And when the girl had concluded the solo, the individual sitting next to Elgers turned to him and he said, Edward, what do you make of that? And he turned and said to his friend, that girl will be really great when something happens to break her heart. Have you ever had your heart broken? Have you ever cried till you thought, if you cried once more, there isn't an ounce of fluid left in your body? Have you ever had your pride crushed in the dust? Have you ever got alone in your room and laid down right on that gritty carpet, right on your face, and cried out to God for his grace and for his help? in the midst of suffering? You know, ask yourself, why do we know Jim Elliot's name? It's because he went to Wheaton? No, because he suffered. Go through the list of missionary biographies, and why do we know these people? Because God brought them through great times of trial and difficulty. Barry, the writer tells of how his younger brother, who was the apple of his mother's eye, died as just a wee boy, and how devastated his mother was as a result of the loss of her youngster. And then Barry says, that is where my mother got her soft eyes, and that is why other mothers ran to her when they had lost a child. The reason some of us are so unapproachable is because we don't have soft eyes. And the reason we don't have soft eyes is because we don't have a soft heart. And we've made the mistake of thinking that we get a soft heart and you get a soft head first. But you can have a soft head without a soft heart. You need a hard head and a soft heart. The pattern he weaves is grace and glory and suffering. The power he displays, the power he displays is magnified in four verbs, and let me just give them to you. Notice what it says. He will himself restore you. After you've suffered a little while, he himself will restore you. Isn't it nice when the person comes themselves? They don't send somebody. They come themselves. And God himself comes in the power of the Spirit to bring about restoration. The word is katartitsai. It is the word to mend. It is the word to repair. It's the thing of putting a bone back in place. It's the mending of the nets by the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. It is the refitting of a damaged vessel in order that it may go back out on the Sea of Life again. It is brought into port, not just to be tampered with, but to be transformed, to be refitted, and to be reused. Listen, some of you are here this week, and frankly, that's what this week has been about for you. God has said, you know what? We're going to have to bring the vessel of your life back into harbor, and we're going to have to restore it. There's going to have to be some restoration work done here. You fell off the wall like Humpty Dumpty. Something happened to you somewhere. You didn't plan on it. You didn't expect it. You didn't want it, but you're off the wall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men, they can't put you back together again. And you're lying there like a big fractured egg. Nobody really knows. Let me tell you something. God is in the business of restoration. God is in the business of restoring the years which even the locusts have eaten. Loved ones, 
young people, you do not have to live chained to the mistakes and disappointments of your past or of your forebears, no matter what anybody tells you. So do not allow the evil one to encourage you to rummage in the garbage cans of forgiven sin, for he is the God whose power is a restoring power. Also, he will make you strong. Notice this. He himself will restore and make you strong. Well, that's an encouragement for some of us, isn't it? Because we're so aware of how weak we are. Indeed, until we know how weak we are, we'll never be interested in becoming strong. There is none so weak as the individual who thinks they're very strong, at least in spiritual terms. The word which is used here is descriptive of supports being put around to prevent the possibility of toppling. That's the picture in Greek. The same thing that happens to you when you're a baby or when, what happens when you get a baby and you go out to um, uh, Mrs. Philip's house and she invites you for dinner and you're having such a nice time, she says, why don't you stay for another couple of hours? And you say, because we have to take the baby home well, why don't you put the baby down and let, let him or her sleep here? And we say, because we don't have the crib in which the baby goes. And the lady says, don't worry, I'll show you how to deal with that. And then with masterfully, masterful skill, which comes from being a granny, she takes your precious bundle into a room, she pushes a bed up against two corners of a wall, and then she starts taking pillows from every place imaginable, and she puts pillows all the way around the perimeter of the bed that isn't marked by the wall. And then she takes a settee, and she puts it up against the bed, and chairs, and all manner of stuff, and she creates this little fortress for this tiny child with one express purpose, to prevent them from toppling, falling onto the floor. It's the exact same word which is used here. God is interested in making sure that you don't topple. And so for those of you who have come in this morning saying, I think I'm about to fall on the floor, let this be a word of encouragement to you. God himself will restore you, and he will make you strong. Thirdly, he will make you firm. Now, the verb here places the emphasis not on toppling, but on collapsing. What happens to your knees when they give out from underneath you? So God not only prevents us from falling over, but he also prevents us from crumbling. He strengthens our weak knees, and he lifts up our drooping hands, and they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Fresh infusions of power for the challenge of the day that awaits us. And fourthly, he will make you steadfast, strong, firm, and steadfast. The emphasis is upon the foundations, rooted in order that we will not be blown away. How does this happen? It happens a la Psalm 1. What is Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That man will be like a tree planted by rivers of water which bring forth fruit in its season." And the result, the reason is because his roots go down into it. You remember the story, the song we sing? We still teach it to Sunday schools, probably. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the foolish man built his house upon the sand. Who's the man on the rock? The man on the rock and the man on the sand are identical insofar as they both hear the same story, and they both say yes. 
The man on the rock is the man who hears my word, says Jesus, and puts them into practice. He will be rock solid. The man or the woman who hears my words and says, hey, very interesting, good morning, will be like the individual who built their house on the sand. As long as it's all music and marching bands, all will be well. But the day that the storm hits, they will go down like a pack of cards. It's back to the issue of yesterday. The place of foundation is in the Word of God. I derive great encouragement from this. Notice what it is saying. God promises us support so that we won't topple, strength so that we won't collapse, and a foundation so that we won't be blown away. And so it is hardly any surprise that verse 11 is just an exclamation, the same kind of exclamation that you get at the end of verse 11 of chapter 4, incidentally. There is no verb in the Greek. In the Greek, it simply reads, To him the power forever and ever. I used to love listening to a recording that one of my friends gave me by Mahalia Jackson, that great uh, black singer. She sang the song, Who Made the Mountains? And who made the trees? And who made the rivers that run to the seas? And who put the moon in the starry sky? Somebody bigger than you or I. He lights the way when your road, when your road is rough. He keeps you company with God beside you, to walk beside you. Tremendous picture. If I could say one thing to you folks as you go back into a day of work, back into a day of school, back into your future, it would be also in the words of that song, there is no problem too big and God cannot solve it. There is no mountain too high and God cannot scale it. If he carried the weight of the world upon his shoulders, do you think somehow he's going to miss you? You may be missed in a group. You may not be Joe Cool or Mary Cool or Mary Coolette or whatever it is in your group on your floor. And you wonder what your place might be and what you might become. Let me remind you this morning that there's a work for Jesus that none but you can do. God is not interested in finding people who are smart talkers people who are naturally extrovert and can move and woo and win the crowd. God says, this is the man or the woman to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And to him, the power forever and ever. Let's bow together in prayer, shall we? Let's make our response to God as we acknowledge our finite natures and His infinity, our weakness and His power. Oh, come, let us adore Him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. 
listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of four messages Alistair Begg presented at MBI Spiritual Emphasis Week 1991. Alistair Begg is the senior pastor of Cleveland's Parkside Church. He's an author, conference speaker, and host of the daily Truth for Life radio program. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.